To become a Formula One world champion, a winning mentality is essential. I don't know how many times I finished second. I have no idea how many times I finished on a podium. That doesn't count. I know how many times I've won, but winning is what it is. That's the end of the job. Winning was all that mattered to Sir Jackie Stewart. And 2023 marks 50 years since he retired as world champion for the third time. And that's what we're celebrating this week. The Scotsman is one of the greatest drivers ever. Brilliantly fast and hugely successful, his 27 victories are still in the top 10 on the all-time F1 list. But Jackie's era of racing was extremely dangerous compared to today. He wasn't just fighting for wins, he was fighting for survival. Most of my races were won in the first two, three laps because I removed emotion. Most people are a bit uptight at the beginning of a race because death was very popular at that time. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid. I'm Tom Clarkson and for this episode, I've been speaking to a true Formula One hero. Jackie Stewart began his Formula One career with the BRM team in 1965. But it was his next move that laid the foundations for his legendary status. He and Ken Tyrrell formed one of the most successful partnerships in the sport's history. A partnership that ended with Jackie retiring in 1973 as a three-time world champion. But while there were plenty of wins, there was also personal loss. During Jackie's nine years in Formula One, eight drivers died in Grand Prix, including his close friends Piers Courage, Jochen Rindt, and his Tyrrell teammate Francois Sever. It's fascinating to hear how numb Jackie became to F1's risks, and why he carried on racing on the day that Roger Williamson lost his life in the 1973 Dutch Grand Prix, a race that Jackie won. But that detachment is one of the things that gave him the edge in races. We talk about Jackie's decision to retire when he was still the man to beat, why his Tyrrell car was superior to its competitors, and why his love affair with Formula One continues to this day. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jackie, it's 50 years since you won your third and final world title. Crazy how time flies. What's your abiding memory of that year? Tiredness, frustration and clarity. Because in April, I made my mind up that I really needed to retire. And it was at Indianapolis and I was getting depressed by the pace of my life, the limit of being at home. I had two little boys and, of course, Helen. And I had been doing enormous travel. And the days that we speak of, and my day of a racing driver, we don't make the money that is made today. And to make proper money, you had to do a lot of races. It wasn't just a question of Formula One. Nobody did only Formula One. So I was doing Can-Am, I was doing Indianapolis, I was doing touring cars, GT cars, everything you can think of on a global basis. And most of my friends were dying as it went along. 
In fact, Helen, my wife, counted 57 friends that had died who had holidayed with, traveled with, of course, raced with. And I think the whole thing just got a got on top of me. And I had mononucleosis one year. I had a duodenal ulcer that burst. And I just thought, why am I doing this to this extent? I had already made good money because in those days, good money was a different value than today. I think in 1971, I, for the first time, earned a million pounds. But a million pounds in 71 in sport was a lot of money. I think I was number two in Europe. I think a bullfighter was getting slightly more. But all of that put together, because I was with Ford, I was with Goodyear, I was ABC's World World of Sports, I was at Formula One, I was at Formula Two, I was at Formula Three. A big lot of work, if you like, and a lot of travel. So therefore, I, I sort of burned out. There are so many questions to ask you about what you've just said, but if you were just chasing the dollar and you'd already earned good money, as you say, in 71, you'd earned a million dollars, why not Pounds. just... <laughs> okay. Why not just reduce your program and focus on Formula One, still work for Ford? I feel like I'm acting as your manager, but was your relationship with the sport all in or all out back then? I don't think it's any different today than it was then. You know, here I am still traveling. Here I am still associated with Formula One in one way or another. I love the sport and I go to the events that I, I enjoy going to. I've got good friends and I'm well looked after. You've explained the tiredness that you spoke of right at the start in that lot of travel uh, in the early 70s and by 73 that was maybe getting on top of you. What about the frustration you spoke of? What caused the frustration? Frustration was because of pressure and time. Different climate changes, different time changes. You know, because I was doing it so hard and fast the time changes were really a problem. So was the, the weather. Um, so therefore, I think, put together that, and I was always driving good cars. I mean, I had Ken Tyrrell and Formula One and Formula Two, and John Coombs was helping him in the Formula Two side. And if I drove another car in America, for example, Carl Haas was a good owner of a good team. By that time, I could choose who I went to bed with, so to speak, in the, in the racing fraternity. Because of my Ford Motor Company relationship, I was still driving a Ford Anglia in some events and doing an awful lot of public appearances. But it was all very stimulating. It was all very exciting. I was doing it with Jim Clark and Graham Hill and people of that kind, and then Francois Sever, etc. So we had a, a lovely group of people that were traveling together. And when I went to America, it was always with Denny Holm. And Denny was a shy man in many ways, but he was a good passenger to be with. So I was doing it as well as I could, but eventually it drove me down. You know, the duodenal ulcer was a problem because it hemorrhaged. And I was racing when it hemorrhaged. I spun twice in Monte Carlo in the rain and finish six or something, which is, was sort of something I'd never done before that far back in Monte Carlo. So put all of that together, 
and I was doing ABC's Wild World of Sports because I was reasonably good at that. I got to know how to do it by a man called Jim McKay, who is the best commentator of sport, I think, in the world. And I was working with him all the time, whether it was the Olympics or whether it was all sorts of different sports. All of that's exciting if you've never done it before. But after you've done it a few years and you're thinking another trip across the pond, I would go to Atlanta, Georgia to do a stock car race. We would be telecasting it, not live. It would be for the following week or the week after that. I would fly in, sometimes more often with Concord than anything else, and, and fly down to whatever the location was of a race. ABC had all the things organized, so I would have a helicopter to get me out of the track, back in to the night flight. I would never take the Concorde on the evening flight because it was slower than sleeping on a plane and going on a 747. But I would always use Concorde from the, the UK or Switzerland, from the UK naturally with, with Concorde, to the United States. So I had it very well organized, but in the end, I was burned out. Yeah. And then the last thing you spoke of was clarity. What was the clarity that you found in 1973? Clarity of why am I doing it? Clarity of the pressure, of the travel. I would be getting more annoyed at things. If a plane was late before, it wouldn't have bothered me. A lot of things just because I was trying to keep up with a lifestyle that I myself had bought. It wasn't anyone else to blame. I wasn't being pushed into it. I had Mark McCormack as a manager, if you like, of my, uh, my sporting life. And he was the best in the business, probably the best ever. So I had really good people around me. But even at that, the better you become, the more you have to do, because the more people want you. And it just became uh, a time when I was really, I think, physically and mentally burned out. So you make the decision to retire in April. Who was the first person you told? I told a priest um, at Indianapolis. A, a priest used to come to an Indianapolis race every year. And he came from the south. He was a lovely man, but he was a real hardcore racing nut. And he liked us, Graham Hill and I, and, and so forth, and Jim Clark, etc. He spent a lot of time with me. And when I was really depressed, I went to him in the Speedway Motel, which I was staying in at the time. And I said, do you mind if you come along? I want to have a chat with you, because I was beginning to burn. And I thought, who do I speak to? I didn't want to speak to Helen or my family, because then they would say, well, you stopped racing. And I told him about it, and he was very religious, and I'm, I would say irreligious, but I, I believe in God. And he, uh, he, he just had common sense about how I should manage my own life in a more relaxed and correct fashion. He just did the trick for me. It was room 49, I think, at the Speedway Motel, in Indianapolis that we had the meeting. And at that time I said, right, I'm gonna retire. And nobody else knew it. Ken didn't know it, nobody else knew it, until much later I told Ken Tittle and Walter Hayes and one other gentleman from Ford Motor Company. 
because I felt I owed it to them to start preparing what they were going to do without me, if you know what I mean. What was their reaction? Particularly Ken? No, 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 no pressure at all. Both Ken Tyrrell and Walter Hayes were amazing people. The brightest people I think I've ever worked with. And they thought, you know, you've been at it long enough, maybe, and you've got every right. Ken would rather I hadn't, I know that. But by which time Francois Sever was developing magnificently. And I took him from a puppy almost in motorsport into the big time. And I taught him everything that I ever knew about motor racing. So I knew that I was handing it over comfortably and it wasn't going to be a surprise to them anyway. And they were a great deal to do with the success financially of my career. Given the inherent dangers back then, why didn't you just stop immediately? Why did you put yourself through it for another season? It's a strange one because uh, I went to all of the services and a lot of the drivers didn't. Francois Sever, for example, would not go to a service. Why did you go? Because I thought it was the right thing to do. I thought it was the right way to see somebody off. Uh, and I still do it for the people who are important to me. Because I still believe in God in, in, a, in, a, in a light way, not in a deep, deep way. But I think it's right for the family to pay the respects to a lost one who you had something to do with or worked with or played with or enjoyed with. But why didn't you just walk away when you knew that you were going to stop, you knew the risks, why put yourself through it? I felt that it was right for me to do it right up to the last moment. I mean, I decided to announce my retirement at Watkins Glen the day after Francois Sever was killed. I didn't do it the day he died because Ken was still saying I should do the race. And then I said to Ken, I think out of respect to Francois, I shouldn't do the race. And that, it was a tricky one because I, it would have been my 100th Grand Prix. So it, it was 99 that I did in the end, but it's a nice number. But I just felt that it wouldn't be right. And Helen was with me and she didn't know until that same afternoon, Helen and Nora Tyrrell were terribly upset. Francois accident they left the track so I stayed with the mechanics they thought it might have been a mechanical failure I, I know in my own experience that it wasn't but I know why he had the accident um, it was a very tricky piece and there was one little piece of road that created an accident and I avoided because I had worked that out but I had more experience than he had so I then went to the Speedway Motel, where Helen and I were staying with Ken and Maura and everybody else, to tell Helen that I was no longer a racing driver. That was the words I actually used. What did she say? She just cried. <laughs> Jackie, how did your looming retirement during the year change your approach to racing? Did it affect how you drove the car, were you, were you leaving a little bit more margin? No, my motor racing never changed, I don't think. It, it was a question of bettering whatever skills I had. 
and finessing them to a higher level. And I think at that time, because I was good at another sport, uh, shooting, trap shooting, and it doesn't sound very exciting in comparison to Formula One racing, but mind management became the most important thing when I was racing. Because if you missed a target, you never got it back. If you make a mistake in a racing car, a, a mediocre mistake, you can make it up in one of the next 20 corners in some cases. So I, I learned a lot from my shooting. And the more I did my motor racing, the more I could learn and build. Most of my races were won in the first two, three laps because I removed emotion. Most people are a bit uptight at the beginning of a race. It's certainly in those days because death was very popular at that time. So for whatever reason, I could remove emotion completely. I had no uptight feeling at all. And therefore, I got my first two or three or four corners well in advance. I would be usually three or four seconds faster on the first lap than anybody else. So. I learned all of those things and I passed them on to Francois and everything I ever knew he got because we just had a great relationship and he was a puppy when he came. Uh, He was a good puppy but you know puppies sometimes pee in the carpet Um, and he came out of that magnificently because Ken was a good man to be with. Our mechanics, I mean my three mechanics were better at what they did than I was at what I did. Uh, And that's why I didn't have wheels fall off the car or mechanical failures. And Derek Gardner or the Matra people built cars that didn't have mechanical failures uh, to cause incidents. As I sadly say, Lotus did have mechanical failures. The sport had been very good to me all the way along and I had had good relationships the Ford Motor Company was a fantastic relationship that I had. But so also was Dunlop for a while. So also was Goodyear, a very good relationship. And Elf was a good company too with Ken Tittle. So I had all the best round me. And they were all good people. Francois Guiter of Elf, an extraordinary man. So that's what made my life maybe go as long as it did before I stopped. And at the same time, that gave Helen a breath of air that she had never had before. And Paul had been told, because Joe Bonnier's uh, family had lost uh, their father, and in the school bus, he came home one day and said, when is Daddy going to die? Because these two boys told Paul that all racing drivers die because their father had died. Going into the year, who had the faster car in 73? Was it you in the Tyrrell 005 or was it Emerson Fittipaldi in the Lotus 72? I think the Lotus had the edge and real speed. The Tyrrell had it in integrity of engineering. It was a better car, stronger car, fewer mechanical failures and a car that I could trust impeccably to take it to the limit. And I, by which time, that whatever skills I had, I had manicured, if you like, right up to the best I think that I could have personally done. 
and it matched the car and I had good communications with the designer as well as Ken and communications are a very important part of it how you explain dynamics and I had to do it because I'm dyslexic it's a strange thing but a dyslexic person can usually do things that other people can't in explaining colour or movements or anything and that made the car a better car to drive and Francois just did everything I did was if Jackie does it I do it type of thing uh, the team was an immensely strong team and the mechanics hugely committed to, to, to excellence. You then introduce the Tyrrell 006 in Kailami and immediately win with that car. Where was it better than its predecessor? Because it was another year on. It was a car that had learned from the car before. The designer had learned from the subtleties of the other car's inabilities. And, you know, uh, when you're dyslexic, you're sometimes quite good at painting pictures because you can't use the words that most people use. The same applies when you're talking about a car's behaviour. You know, where does it get the bump rubbers? When does it come off the bump rubbers? And do the bump rubbers come off and push it over its bump rubber to the next bump rubber? You know, things like that I couldn't have done as a puppy but as a mature racing driver, I, I, I felt the car more completely. And my mechanics and Ken and Derek Gardner, the designer, listened very well. Was there a degree of telepathy between you and Derek Gardner? No, I think it was a, a, just a common respect I had for him uh, as a designer, and I think a common respect he had in me probably as driving his car as he would like to have seen it driven. So it was a, a quiet relationship. It wasn't a, a passionate relationship of having to give him a cuddle every time the car went well. That wasn't necessary. It was just, oh, well, that was good, that worked, and we won the race. There wasn't any jumping around on the podium in those days, you must remember. If you look back there, you wave to the crowd. The crowd were just as excitable as they are today at Monza and places like that. But there wasn't the same activities going on. When it comes to the ebb and flow of that season, Emerson won three of the opening four races and you actually retired from the fourth race in Barcelona, Montjuic Park, with brake problems. What were you thinking about your championship chances at that stage? Uncomfortable. You know, Emerson was a very good driver, and he was, by the way, a very good friend, and still is a very good friend. Lotus always had the edge and utter speed, I think, but it was very fragile. It was a very, very fragile car. I had a car that was robust. Sometimes that robustness took away the edge of that little extra you need to get something done. On the other hand, it gives you the comfort and the, and, and the confidence that you can certainly do some things with high G-forces that you might not have been able to do in another branch, another car. When did you feel the pendulum started to swing back your way during the year? I don't think I ever felt it. I think it was just a question of driving to win. I mean, that's what I wanted to do all of the time. 
uh, I, I never drove to get championship points. They didn't really matter. Winning is the only thing that matters. I so you took each race as it came, want yeah, to win that one and then move on to the next? Yeah, but I, for example, I don't think... I know. In fact, I know. I don't know how many times I finished second. I have no idea how many times I finished on a podium. I don't... That doesn't count. I know how many times I've won. But winning is what it is. That's the end of the job. Let's talk about the Dutch Grand Prix. Emerson crashed during practice, damaging his foot. He qualified 16th and then had to retire from the race, unable to continue because of the pain. You won that race. Do you feel that was a turning point? No, I don't think so. It was just another race for me. It wasn't a nice race. That was the one, that wasn't it, that we, the young driver had died. And we all saw that. Can you believe in those days, compared with what you're doing as a journalist today, when Pierce Courage died, or any of the other people that died, Joe Slater, etc., the cars destroyed themselves, first laps or early laps, fire all over the racetrack, driving through the flames. Well, well, Jackie, how difficult was that? We're talking about Roger Williamson, who burned to death in the Dutch Grand Prix. You won that race. How difficult was it for you to continue driving? It wasn't. It was just you kept going. You know, it's a, it's a heartless thing to say. But if they had put a red flag out, we would have stopped. But the organisers didn't know any better. They really didn't have any knowledge of what they should be doing. It was another generation, completely. They were way behind themselves. And the same things happened to Pierce Courage, and the same thing happened to uh, Joe Slesser. The race should always have had stopped. But we were told that the race continued, so you continued. I mean, I knew Pierce had died because I saw his helmet off the track. And, and the, it was still on fire. And Roger Williamson, exactly the same. We knew he had died. You know, it, you just, for some reason, you block that off. I was totally unaffected by that accident or those accidents you could say that's a terrible thing you're being overly unfair to the families and so forth and it's true but you know the wives were at the other end so Helen was looking after Piers's wife and having to go and take their clothing from the hotel so that she didn't have to go back to the same room the girls went through hell on that but the racing driver for whatever reason and I think if anybody was here talking about it right now they would say the same as me you just kept on driving so were you surprised when you heard after the race that David Purley had stopped and tried to put out the flames on Roger's car we saw him waving us down we saw him getting into the centre of the track sometimes and trying to wave us down but the officials weren't telling us that so we continued Jackie, there were some other key moments in the year that I wanted to ask you about. First up, let's go to Monaco, your third win through the streets of the Principality and the 25th win of your career, equaling your friend Jim Clark. What did that mean to you, to equal Jim's tally? It really wasn't a big thing. It was just another race. I mean, to be doing the same as Jimmy had done was pretty impressive for me because he was the best racing driver that I ever raced against or with. But 
It's a strange thing. I think emotion was removed in my life probably the night before a race. As the night drew on, it got less in existence, the concern of the race. And when I got into the car, I had no, uh, no emotion at all. And when I was racing, I didn't have any emotion at all. And when I finished the race, I didn't have any emotion at all. And when I won my first ever Grand Prix, there wasn't much motion either. It wasn't until I was walking down the steps of the Villa d'Este Hotel, that's the day after, and I was walking down and suddenly I heard the concierge saying, oh, you've got to get this uh, air f ticket that I needed to have because he, he's the world champion Was at that time. And I thought, wow. And that was the first time that anything hit me. See, I think emotion's a very dangerous thing. You say things and do things if you're emotional that you wish later you had never said or done. If you can remove emotion, you're a much clearer mind and you can function more correctly. What were you like in between races, at home, with the family? I was just Jackie Stewart, daddy of two and husband of one. And we have always had an enormously close family and, and we still love each other enormously. Mark came up to see me this morning to see if I was okay. But was there emotion when you were with your family? No, I don't think there was. That's maybe it, there was love and a tension and probably guilt, on, therefore playing a little bit more in the garden than I might have done if it were a, another person. If you see the film that Mark made on me, I don't know if you've seen it or not, you'll see me on several occasions just a normal daddy. And I think I was a normal daddy, really. The only thing it was I was a racing driver daddy. Did you think you were leading a very selfish existence? During the time of my racing, I don't think so. Towards the end of it, I was beginning to feel those things. But that was after I had had my conversation with the priest in Indianapolis. I started to realize some of that. You know, Paul was the one that got hit hardest. They both were at another house when Helen was with me in Watkins Glen. They went to stay with friends, school friends. And during the end of the race, it was told that Jackie Stewart had been killed. And Paul heard it all. And he had to tell the people that were in the next room that they said that Daddy had been killed. And then, of course, it was clarified later that it was a mistake. But those are the things that you only heard about later. Let's talk about the German Grand Prix. Your 27th and final victory came at the Nürburgring, the track that you christened the Green Hell. There's something ironic about that, that the track that you openly disliked seemed to bring out some of the best performances in you. You were a racing driver. You got into the cockpit and the lights went out. Emotionally, that's what happened. Uh, the Nürburgring was the finest racetrack in the world, the most difficult racetrack in the world, but the most dangerous racetrack in the world, 187 corners per lap. You couldn't have enough marshals. It's, it would take two armies to have enough marshals to properly protect drivers who might have had accidents. And beyond that, they wouldn't have enough firefighting equipment or anything else. There was no deformable structures. There was nothing 
there, you were going to fly into trees or drop away from into great depths. So for whatever reason, I went well at the Nürburgring. I got Ringmeister, it's a ring you get. I didn't get it for my win in the, in the Formula One car. I got it for my win the year before in a Formula Two car because I had a big win there as well. But the big win with over four minutes ahead of everybody else, that's the one that everybody remembers. Yeah. But then we were talking about not wanting to drive there again. I mean, it, it had been going on for some time. But in those days, the generation of the people who were governing the track were people of the past. And if Nuvolari and Caracciola could put up with it, and so could Sterling Moss and, and Mike Hawthorne and Mr. Fangio uh, go around there quickly, why are you boys complaining? But it, it had gone wrong. It was wrong. It was so dangerous. A track like that with 187 corners, as you say, did you ever properly learn it? Is it too no, long? No, I don't think so. I, I, um, I, I never felt I had the perfect lap at the Nürburgring. There was always a little bit you didn't do right or you just didn't in a little bit too late or whatever. Never anything serious, but it was the greatest challenge of any racetrack that's ever been built in the world. And to drive in a Formula One car, which is such a machine of excellence, it's a very sensitive piece of machinery. And to be able to allow it to live without breaking it or putting too much energy into certain areas of it, it was a great balance of a driver, man and machine, I mean. That was a relationship, a proper relationship. And that was one of the most attractive things I think you would get from any top-line racing driver, I think they would say the same. So let's move it on to the Italian Grand Prix. You knew that you could clinch the title that weekend. How did you feel coming in? No different than any other day. No different than any other day. I, I had no emotions about things like that. It just wasn't part of my life. Um, it wasn't a question of this is the last time I'm going to drive at Monza. Nothing like that. Did you have a good reception? I thought that at the Nürburgring, though. I knew I was that, that was different because Monza wasn't that difficult. It was a lot of slipstreaming, but it wasn't a difficult racetrack. The Nürburgring was a challenge. I mean, that was the challenge of all challenges. And to do that and know it was going to be my last Grand Prix, that would have been a different feeling altogether, but no, not at Monza. Did you have the respect of the Tifosi? Did you have a good relationship with the Italian fans? Yes, well, they loved it. I mean, but they loved it for every driver. <laughs> I mean, they still love it for every driver. They showed more passion than any other racetrack in the world. Now you go to Brazil or you go to Mexico, you get that same fashion. Italy's always had it because they're aficionados. They're, they're, they're great enthusiasts of the sport and they're pure about it. They exuberated everybody. Uh, it was uh, a different life altogether. Now, you finished the Italian Grand Prix fourth. You had a puncher. You went to the back and climbed your way back through the field. Was that one of your best races? Probably. It was a lonely one because there was nobody in sight. Every now and again I would see one and we'd have to go and pass it. But uh, Ken Tyrrell was trying to keep me interested, thinking I would get bored. At one point he put a, a, a signal board out saying um, minus 10 Fangio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to waken me up, so to speak. 
obviously that day I was able to take, it was a clear view in most cases. So I l did the lap record regularly almost, not every lap, but nearly every lap, because I wasn't getting pushed and shoved by any other driver. And can you remember the emotions you felt after clinching that title? Again, emotion was something that didn't appear until probably three days after the event. It never got me high, it never got me low. Then two or three days, after, four maybe, four days after the event, I would start thinking, wow, I won the Italian Grand Prix or I did well or I did that, you know, whatever. Can you remember what you did after the race? Because you finished fourth, so you're not on the podium. So you drive back into the pit lane. Helen is there to meet you. Ken Tyrrell is there to meet you. I, I, imagine, I imagine they're related. I wasn't convinced I had won the World Championship. Are you absolutely sure? I would say to him several times. Because you're finishing fourth, for God's sake. And you no, 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 you've got the World Championship. And he was very excited by it. I don't know whether... It, was, it must have been intentional, the emotion, the removing emotion... But I think removing emotion was one of the things that gave me the, uh, the edge on a lot of other people. Whether it was an up or a down, it was the same for me. It was to winning or somebody losing their life. It was a very similar. There, there was no high and no low. It was still a neutral piece of territory. So three days later, can you remember how you felt then? Was this the most satisfying of your three world titles? Yeah, probably. Knowing that I was going to retire, because Ken didn't know, but I knew. So to win my world championship and make it three, for me, uh, it was nice that I was going to retire as world champion. I knew that it had been the right time to retire. There was not once since I retired would, did I ever feel it would be nice to go back and do it again. I attempted to be convinced to come back once or twice, but it never was even... I thought that I should do it. That wasn't a question, I'll talk about it, call me next week or talk me next day if you want. There was nothing like that. I, I was totally satisfied. Can you share with us the people who asked you to come back? Did Ferrari come knocking, for example? Bernie asked me to come back. But I think it was a. I think he was playing games with me because he offered me six million. At that time, that was a lot, a lot of money, not comparison to today, but then it was six million to come drive just Formula One cars. Uh, and I said, look, I'm not going to do it. And it's not a question of having to think about it. I'm, I'm not coming back. So I was very relaxed about it. There was no, oh, mm, do you think it should? Maybe I'll have a go. Five years after I retired, I drove all of the Formula One cars with the exception of Ferrari who wouldn't let me drive the car because I hadn't agreed to drive for him. Jackie, having achieved your goal of winning the world title, were you tempted to just pack it in after the Italian Grand Prix and not go to those final North American races? No. When I won in Monza to secure the world championship, I would never have let Ken Tyrrell down by saying, right, Ken, I'm out of it now. And there would have been nobody to drive the car because everybody else would have been, at that time, committed. But Ken and I had decided that Francois was going to be the number one driver, and Ken wanted to have Jody Schechter as the number two driver. 
and we discussed that endlessly. So all of that had already been worked out, and I had no time it thought that, well, maybe I'll have a little extra thought about it. And I enjoyed the idea of Ken already wanting Francois, because I knew he was good, uh, and I knew better than Ken even that he was good. So I, it was a very comfortable uh, sense of the emotion, again, not being affecting my life in any way. So 73, on the one hand, was perfect because you signed off winning the world title. But of course, it ended in terrible fashion at Watkins Glen. How clearly do you remember that Saturday morning when Francois lost his life or have you blanked it out? No, it's completely clear as can be now. And when Helen and I see Mark's film today or films that have come from other people in these days, Helen and I still have tears on her, you know, still there. It was such a terrible thing to happen. And uh, to happen in my last Grand Prix was just the worst thing that could have happened at that time. It was just a sad, sad time. Can you remember the last conversation you had with Francois? No, only that we were talking, chassis, talking, setups, talking, everything, because he wanted to know everything. It was, it was, it was like a sponge, and I never once didn't give him everything he wanted in the way of knowledge. The, the relationship we had was fantastic, a really, really deep relationship. And emotionally, he was, you know, he never went to a funeral. Francois refused to go to a funeral. He had, you know, he had total confidence in himself. Um, but he didn't know he was going to be the number one driver because he had come with Helen and I to Bermuda between the Canadian Grand Prix and the American Grand Prix. And he was trying to get to me who, whether I should, he should take a Ferrari drive because they had approached him. And I said, no, you don't have to do it just now. That why do you need to do it before the end of the race, the end of the last race? Wait until you finish the race and tell Mr. Ferrari that you, you don't want to discuss it until the end of the season. And uh, that was very clear. So, you know, when the accident happened, uh, you know, it just changed everything. Uh, you know, it changed Ken, it changed the mechanics, it changed Helen. And for me, it was just the loss of Francois. It wasn't the loss of motor racing. Because here I am still to this day, I still love the sport enormously and continued to do so, you know, thereafter, if you know, from the accident point of view. Still as glamorous, colorful, it's exciting. You touched on other people wanting you to come back. Do you think once you'd recharged for a couple of years, you would have had another title in you? Who knows? You know, I was driving at the best of my abilities when I retired, and the other guys hadn't quite, in most cases, got to that level. And it takes a wee while to get to that level, unless you've got a very demanding car of success. I mean, the Lotuses were faster than everybody else's cars. And the reason Jim Clark did so well was that he was so smooth with the car. Most everybody else drove the car too hard, and they didn't need to. And he could be smooth and gentle with the car, and seldom did he have a Formula One car that broke down or had a mechanical failure 
we all had mechanical failures from time to time in those days, but the Lotus had far more than anybody else. So from my point of view, you know, the Ken Tyrrell relationship was the perfect one because he was a man of considerable integrity and he had a designer that was very conservative. And it wasn't an easy car to drive. The, sh the short wheelbase car was a very difficult car to drive. 006 was a better car to drive. 003 was fast, but very difficult to drive. And not many people could have driven that car, in my opinion. Um, when in our day we were racing, we were driving every sort of car you can think of, a Can-Am car or a Ford Escort or a Cortina, for God's sake, the worst of all. And you had to challenge the car all the time just to keep it going quick enough. You learned a lot more in those days, I think, about the subtleties of driving. And driving a Can-Am car one weekend and then a Ford Escort the next weekend he needed it's a to totally be versatile. Animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we that was a terrific way of building talent. Now the Grand Prix driver generally only drives one car, apart from the simulator. So Jackie, how did being a three-time world champion change your life? I don't think it changed my life at all. It was nice to have it but it was nice because I was being used by the Fords and the Elfs and the Goodyears. And so I was going to run the world with these companies. And that gave me great experiences. I mean, every time I went, I'd go to India or Argentina, I'd be meeting the president or the head of state or whatever. I was learning so much about life outside of just behind the steering wheel. It was very tiring when you did it. I mean, it was right around the world. And if you went to the White House, you, you had dinner with the president. Um, so all of these things happened at that time that was... Facilitated by the world championship. Yes, yes, be only because of it. Or, or winning races in the Can-Am or, you know, meeting immensely successful people. And, and Lewis Hamilton or, or Verstappen today will be given the privileges of meeting up with some fantastic people. And it's a very great privilege to have. Well, Jackie, it was a phenomenal career, and what a way to end it in 1973, 50 years ago. 50 good years. <laughs> Fifty good years indeed. Jackie is a living legend. Any time with him is time well spent. And never more than when he's talking about Formula One. I loved hearing his memories of 1973. It was an extraordinary season. One of his best. And his words, emotion is very dangerous. Explains so much about what makes him and the other great drivers so good. Jackie, thank you for your time and I look forward to seeing you again soon. How many of you remember that 1973 season? Did you see Jackie race? What stories have you got about the great man? Please let me know, and I'll read out some of them at the end of next week's show. Send them to me at TomClarksonF1 or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Oscar Piastri, F1's newest point scorer after last week's show. Let's start with this from Jason Jorgensen. 
Oscar is such a well-spoken, grounded young man. He definitely appears to have the tools to fight at the front of the grid. It will be fun to see him and Lando as the car improves. Well, it will indeed, Jason. And Australia went pretty well for McLaren, didn't it? Next, it's the turn of Asmaz. All of the remote control racing community in Australia is so proud of this young man. I raced against Oscar when he was about seven. He always lapped me and most of us fully grown men. Oh, as poor you, but I'm sure Oscar was very good at remote control car racing. Thanks for sharing that memory. And finally, let's hear this from Thalonius 7 it's crazy to think of the mentality that this young man has. His response to being informed that he was not to be on the F1 grid in 2022, no matter what he did, was to qualify on pole and win the F2 feature race in all the remaining rounds. Yep, it was an astounding response, wasn't it? It says a lot about Oscar. Well, thanks all for your messages. And if you enjoyed hearing from Jackie Stewart this week, why not listen to his previous appearance on F1 Beyond the Grid? The link is included in the episode description. And please do leave us a rating or a review if you've enjoyed the episode. We love reading them. And a few other things before I go. F1 Nation's review of the Australian Grand Prix is out now. Check that out on your podcast player by searching for F1 Nation. And do check out F1.com for video features and analysis from the race weekend. If you join F1 Unlocked, you'll get free access to some exclusive stuff as well. F1.com is the place to go. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>